Well, good morning, Incarnation, Harrisonburg, out-of-town guests, friends. Glad you guys are here. Um, <clears throat> oh, hey, these, these two guys, uh, stand up. This is Will and Jared. They're twins. They don't go to church here, but they're good friends, so go introduce yourself to them afterwards and treat them well. <laughs> Glad you guys are here. Um, if, you're, if you're here regularly, you're probably a little more familiar with Aubrey's style of preaching. Every, every speaker has a little different angle or approach, and uh, what serves us when Aubrey speaks is he comes up and he has his stack of notes all dog-eared, and it works. It works. Admittedly, sitting in the front row, I find myself sometimes counting how many pages he has. <laughs> Anybody else? You're not in your head. All right, so I'm not the only one. Um, don't worry. He probably won't listen to this talk. Um, my style, what I like to do, is just to work through a text verse by verse um, and make some comments as we go, slow down in some places, speed through some other stuff. So if you get out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 12, we're going we're gonna to walk through it. We're going to look at it verse by verse. This is a great, great text. Um, it's got some cool stuff in it, uh, like kings being eaten alive by worms, Ben, you excited for that? You excited for the king to be eaten by worms? Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Uh, we have the praying church. We have Peter taking on the form of Christ. Uh, you'll see that in a little bit. Uh, so before we get into the text, let me pray and ask God to meet us. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that by it you reveal yourself to us. Lord, we open ourselves to you right now. Uh, not to me, uh, but to you, Holy Spirit to speak and to illumine our lives by way of your word. We pray that we would know Jesus better, that we would live and pray more faithfully and bear the likeness of Christ in this world as a result of our time in your word and our time of worship this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're king, that you rule, that you overcome all evil, all sin and brokenness in this world. Lord, might we find ourselves as we leave here this morning under the shadow of your cross. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. So, um, I, I was traveling with some friends a few weeks ago, some students. Students are my friends. And I told them I was invited to speak on this text at church, and so we studied Acts 12 together. And one of the things we really quickly noticed about the text is that it really doesn't fit in uh, literarily. It's a, it's a bit of a parenthesis to the book of Acts. So if, if you have your Bibles open and take a quick look at the end of chapter 11, verse 30, it says, This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now flip to the end of chapter 12. So chapter 11 ends with Barnabas and Saul. 12.25 says, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So, one commentator has gone so far as to say that were chapter 12 of the book of Acts removed, no one would really miss it, that the, the story actually flows better without it present. And what it ends up being is a bit of a, now it fits into the book of Acts, don't get me wrong, uh, but it's a bit of a parenthetical story, and the parentheses are King Herod alive, close parentheses, King Herod dead. So, it starts with King Herod in a, a bit of a mood, perhaps, 
Uh, Herod is not a good guy. Uh, this, this, by the way, there's been a couple Herods in the New Testament. This is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was Herod when Jesus was born, and he was the, the king who said, let's kill all the baby boys, and Jesus and his family are taken down to Egypt, and Jesus lives, King Herod dies. There's another Herod who was this Herod's uncle, and that's the Herod that beheaded John the Baptist, and uh, kind of saw Jesus as a bit of a curiosity, and when Pontius Pilate uh, sends Jesus over during his trial to see Herod, uh, Herod kind of talks to him, hopes he'll perform a miracle or do some kind of a, a sideshow for him to entertain him. Jesus doesn't, so he puts a robe on him and sends him back to Pilate to be executed. So this, that was this guy's uncle. So this is Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa is the consummate politician. He is all about posturing uh, kind of playing games with the people, using his power to preserve himself. I'm not trying to make too many political commentaries right now, but, but that, that's what he was doing. Um, all the way to the point of persecution. And so that's what we find him do in the first four verses, is that he intends to persecute the church. And so he takes James, and he, uh, it says by the sword, puts him to death. Uh, he beheads him. He cuts his head off. And the Jews love this. And Herod's like, oh, well, this is interesting. So I can curry the favor of the Jews by killing the Christians. Uh, this James, by the way, was the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred. Not the first martyr, uh, but the first of the actual disciples to be martyred. Uh, and so Herod gets Peter, throws him in prison, puts him with a bunch of guards, four Four times four guards, 16 guys guarding him. So here's the text. Acts 12, verses 1 through 4. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Yet James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Now, I told you guys, I, uh, I went through this text with some students. Um, I was actually on vacation with them down in Argentina, and we were like at the, uh, trying to do observe, interpret, apply, basic intervarsity, how you study the Bible type stuff. And we were driving to application, and it was like, well, how do you apply a king eaten by worms and a guy in prison? I was like, what do you do with that for our lives? And when I left, uh, I was leaving, I, I gave Scott, uh, Scott Caravis a hug. I was like, hey, email me some applications. It's like, I want, I want to know what you're thinking about this text. And so he emailed me. So this is from Scott Caravis, one of my students. Um, he says, no matter the situation, again, James has been beheaded, Peter's thrown in prison, and, and this is what Scott says. Um, uh, let, here we go. Uh, why did King Herod have to kill James? Why is Peter in prison? And then, and then he extrapolates into our lives. Why is there so much violence, hate, and anger in our world? Why is blank, fill in the blank? I don't know the plan, but that's why I trust in a really big God who does. Incidentally, Scott didn't live kind of a, a cushy life. He had a very good friend in high school who died um, out of the blue and has had family health issues and personally, uh, things I won't say, but it works through a lot of stuff personally. So he isn't just making these questions up. says, why did King Herod have to kill James? Why is Peter in prison? Why is there so much violence, hate, and anger in the world? Why is blank? I don't know the plan, but that's why I trust in a really big God who does. 
through whatever current circumstance that I can easily deem as bad, there is always a but happening. And that's what I love. That's verse 5 right there. So Peter was in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. That no matter what's going on, there's a but. And we, we see the dark side, but the church is earnestly praying. So it's not just that the church is praying. The Word says he, he's, the church is earnestly praying. Let me, let me give you that word in Greek. It's the word ektenos. Ek meaning fully, tenos meaning stretched. That the church is fully stretched out in prayer. This word tenos is where we get our word tension. That's also where we get our word tendon. So your, your tendon right here, your Achilles heel, that is a tendon. It's connected to a bone and a muscle. And so it connects two things that are different and stretches them out. And so we find the church praying. So what, what does prayer stretch? What does it stretch out? What does it connect? What is it in between? Prayer, the prayer of the church is in between the realities and the hope. And it stands the ground between that which is broken and that which can be whole. That which is dark, that which can be light. And so in this place, prayer is being made. It's stretching, it's filling out. This is really akin to, but perhaps not perfectly, what the Jews called lament. A third of all the Psalms are lament. It's a willingness to say, in my prayer, I'm not just blindly turning to God, pretending that the world and the brokenness doesn't exist, and just praising Him. That's a type of prayer, and that's good, and that's right. But it's also not saying, I'm just stuck in this mess, and I'm looking at all that's bad. It's a willingness to stand in the realities of life, the darkness, the brokenness, the hurt, the struggle, and not just raise a fist at God and say, how come you don't fix this? But to, with one hand holding on to the realities and another hand holding on to the Lord, saying, God, make this thing change. Fill the gap. Bridge the distance. I'll mediate it. Personally, I find this pretty hard, largely because I'm not a super emotional guy. Um, and so it's hard for me to kind of step into oh, wonderful hope or to step into bitterness and brokenness. But I don't know that it's just me. Uh, I think largely as Americans, we tend to be pretty stoic, especially white Americans. See, no one's even saying an amen. See, we don't, we don't, express, we don't express ourselves. Um, and I also think we're, we're so overwhelmed by the brokenness um, in the news, in the media, in our own lives that we just kind of become numb and indifferent. But it's our stoicism that I think keeps us from actually engaging fully in our hearts in this type of earnest, lamenting prayer where we allow ourselves to feel the full brokenness and weight and the full hope and glory of what's to come. If you guys, uh, I don't think it is just me, you guys watch the news and you see an American whose house just burned down or they lost their son or something like that, um, and they're being interviewed, what, what's their response? What's their reaction? They try to really kind of hold it together, right? They're like, well, you know, I will rebuild, and there's just this tiny little tear coming down, or, you know, the, the life had purpose, and, but they're holding it together. You, you see that contrasted with an Arab culture 
when someone has died or there's been loss or there's been tragedy, and they just enter into it. They enter into the grief, and there's wailing, and people are double-overed, and there's crying, and there's tearing of clothes, and it's, it's just full on. And this is what this church is doing. They are full-on embracing the brokenness that's happening as a result of this persecution. And they're praying for Peter. They're standing in that middle place, holding on to the reality, but also holding on to the hope. And the question is, what did they pray for? We're told they prayed for Peter. But what what exactly did they pray for? And this is where it gets a little interesting, because I think our our gut would tell us, well, if I was in that situation, I think I'd pray for him to, to live, right? Or I pray for him to get out of prison. I don't think that's what they prayed for. So look at the text with me. Let me show you this. This is Acts 12. Let's start at verse 12. Jump with me over to the middle of the text where Peter shows up at the house where everyone's praying. It says, When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people were, uh, had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda, don't name your girl that, came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. Now look at these three responses that the praying church has to the good news that Peter's here, he's out of jail, and he's alive. Here's their reaction. Number one, you're out of your mind. Is that the reaction of a church that's been praying for release and life? Probably not. And to kind of further drive this point home, you're out of your mind. Now, maybe they just said that because they didn't like Rhoda, or she was kind of gossipy, or, you know, something. So maybe they just didn't care for her. It's like, be quiet. Um, but when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Now, there was a popular Jewish notion that when a righteous person died, they actually took on an angelic form and would be in the presence of uh, us, the living, to help and to serve them. So really what they're thinking is, well, if he is there at the door, it's his angel. He's died. He has come to show himself or to help us in some way, shape, or form. They don't think he's alive. And lastly, when they do open the door, it says they were astonished. So either they're praying really faithless prayers, like, God, please just get him out. God, please let him live. Or they're praying something completely different. I want to suggest to you they're praying something completely different. That what they're actually praying for is that Peter would remain faithful to the Lord, be it in life or death. Peter is infamous for being the guy who denied Jesus. He's the one that turned his back on him three times. And not to mention, Peter could potentially live and at the same time do it by way of denying Jesus. And that would actually deteriorate the gospel and the cause of the Lord. Their prayer isn't that Peter would get out of prison. The prayer isn't that he would live. The prayer is that in the midst of trial and difficulty, he would remain faithful to the gospel and to Jesus Christ.
So, we have a group of people praying earnestly for Peter to remain faithful, to not give in to temptation, to renounce the Lord. It's Passover. There's been an arrest. There's a Herod. Does this any, sound familiar to anybody? Start to, some pieces start to come together for you. Passover, arrest, earnest prayer for the faithfulness of God's people and to fulfill his will. Peter's life is paralleling Jesus' crucifixion and passion. And you see it then play out in the text. Some differences and some distinct differences, namely in the fact that the church is praying. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells the disciples, go pray that you wouldn't fall into temptation. And what do they do? They fall asleep. Jesus, or actually exact same word, ektenos, is earnestly praying in the garden. And the disciples fall asleep. Here, the church is doing what they're supposed to do. They're earnestly praying, and Peter's asleep. He's resting. He's able to remain faithful and true and be at peace. And we see him move into this place, essentially, of death. The death sentence is already upon him. Verse 7, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries uh, stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. It was Jesus who said when they came to arrest him, he's like, at any moment I could call out to my father, and he would send 12 legions, 60,000 angels, and they would be at my disposal. Jesus didn't do it, but here the angels come, and they come and bring deliverance because the church is earnestly praying. The church is faithful in prayer. And the angel said to him, put on your clothes. Where Jesus was stripped, Peter is clothed. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but had no idea what the angel was doing, uh, what was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision, and they passed. And this is him. This is the resurrection moment. He's breaking out of the bonds of death. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, the dawning, the resurrection, the coming of the new day, that this awareness... He went to the house of Mary, and what does he do there? He reveals himself to a woman, just as Jesus did at the first resurrection, and she goes back and tells them, he's here, and just as with Jesus, they don't believe him. And so what do they do? They have to see him for for themselves, and so they see him, and they're astonished. And just as Jesus did in his resurrection, Peter explains himself, tells them to be quiet, and then tells them to tell others, tell James and the brothers about this, and he leaves for another place. Peter's life takes the form of Christ. He lives a parallel life, a cruciform life. Because the church is praying for faithfulness, not for freedom, not for life, not for getting out of jail, but that he would remain true to Jesus, Peter's able to do it. And while Peter is remaining true to the Lord, we see Herod denying the Lord. Herod has every opportunity to recognize that there is a God, that there is one greater than him, though he is king, and has, we're going to see this here in verses 18, 19, and 20, that Herod has the power of death, 
in the power of life. And Herod has the opportunity to recognize the Lord, to claim him, and he doesn't do it. Look with me at verse 18 and 19. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers. as what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards. In other words, he, he looked into this. What exactly happened that this guy got out of here? And Herod is forced to bear witness to the glory of God who redeemed and rescued and set free Peter. The, the evidence stands there clear as day that these guards didn't release him. They didn't set him free, but there was a miracle that took place. And Herod, in his blindness and bitterness, turns against it. He refuses to recognize the glory of God. And in his shame and rage, he has the guards executed. And then in this godlike play where he's killing and now giving life, verse 20, he'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured and su- uh, the support of Blastus, which I think is a really cool name, by the way. I think it'd be a good name for the next Napotnik son, whichever, whoever had Blastus and Napotnik. It's good. It's good. Blastus, um, a trusted servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So essentially what, what Herod is doing is he's taming an entire people group with hunger. Oh, you're hungry? All right, well, I'll give you food, but not because I care about you, but because I'm God. I set myself up as the king, as the one who rules, who gives life and takes life. Peter is faithful, and he refuses to deny God. Herod refuses to acknowledge God. He sets himself up as God. We have that choice. Do we set ourselves up as the one who rules life, rules my home, all things circle around me, my comfort, my success, my well-being, and I give life through kindness and love and blessing, or I take life through cursing and bitterness of others? Do I do that, or do I take on the cruciform life? Whereby my life, none of us are going to be thrown in prison. I don't, I don't think, no matter who gets elected. I, I don't think we're, any of us are going to be thrown in prison in our lifetime. But are we willing, nevertheless, to bear the cross of hurt, of other people's sin, of forgiveness, of service to the world, and as Peter, bear forth the life of Christ? Or do we set ourselves up as a God? Uh, A wonderful missionary woman named Amy Carmichael, uh, she was a missionary to India in the early 20th century. For 55 years, she died on the mission field at the age of 83. She wrote this poem. It's called, Hast Thou No Scar? Um, it's from the perspective of Jesus, and it's, uh, it's wonderfully convicting. Let me read it to you. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee song as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent leaned against the tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. 
but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? We have a choice to take a cruciform life or to take a life where we set ourselves up as the ruler. And Herod, unlike Peter, sets himself up as the king, the one who rules. And on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. There's only a couple places in the Bible where it says God laughs, and you don't want to hear God laughing. Every time God is laughing in Scripture, he's laughing at the foolish, self-centered lives of men. We read it this morning in Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire against the peop- and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers stand together, gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. Throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 37 12 and 13, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. God laughs at Herod. Josephus, who's an ancient historian and theologian, tells this exact same story that's in Acts 12. And he says in his telling of it, that Herod had dressed himself in fine robes that were um, embroidered with gold, so that as he stood before the people and the sun glistened off in him, he looked like he was shining in glory. And that when the people called out, this isn't the voice of a man, it's the voice of a God, Josephus writes that in that moment, Herod doubled over in agony, and for five days was in great pain of the bowels. And that when he had died, they discovered that he had been eaten alive by intestinal worms. Calvin writes of this, John Calvin, saying, overcome by an army, his death may have been valiant, but worms were God's soldiers. So let me read to you again from my friend and great theologian, Scott Carabas, what he says of Herod. He says, Herod was full of himself until he thought he knew the correct plan for everything. Verse 1, so this is, this is going to be our summary. Scott's going to sum it up for us. Verse 1 says he was intending to persecute them. Yet in the end, verse 24, the word of God continued to increase and spread. So his intentions didn't work out too great for him. All the way to his end, he didn't give the praise to God. He may have been wearing royal robes and sitting on thrones and absolutely adored by some, but in the end, none of that mattered because the dude ended up disgusting. Eaten by worms, that's gross. (laughs) Verse 1, intending to persecute him. Verse 24, 
because of the prayers, the earnest prayers of the church, because of the cruciform life of Peter and their faithfulness to God, King Herod dies and the word of God continues to increase and spread. Peter is faithful. The church is faithful and the cruciform life testifies to the world of the glory of God. This happens over and over again in Scripture. It's meant to happen over and over again in our lives. This is the way Paul goes out. Paul, in 2 Timothy, his last book, Paul's chained up, waiting for his executions. The last book he writes, writes it to his dear friend and his disciple Timothy. And in chapter 2, verse 9, while he's chained up, he writes these amazing words. It says, the word of God is not chained. I'm chained up. I'm going to die. They can kill me, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I will endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of God is not chained. Therefore, I will take on the cruciform life, endure everything so that some might be saved. So Christians, are you willing to, along with Paul, Peter, and the early church, Hold firmly to the realities in this broken world and don't pretend they don't exist. Don't remove yourself from the world, but hold firmly onto it. And with another hand, will you hold firmly to God in an earnest prayer, live out the cruciformed life? This is what earnest prayer brings about. Us entering into the cross, becoming as Jesus, and enabling us and empowering us, not just through prayer, but in daily living, to take on the brokenness in the world and be the mediators who show the world the true king, the true savior, the true life, Jesus Christ. Church, will you do that? And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you're here visiting or perhaps you're just a a religious person who identifies as Christian, I would invite you to not be as Herod. And, And all of us wrestle with this. All of us want to set ourselves up as God to be the one who's in charge and my way or the highway. If you're that person, would you come to Jesus Christ? Let him be the Lord. Let him be the king who rules. Would you submit all of your life to him, not trying to play God with life and death and decide who's right, who's wrong, but rather just say, I can't, I can't rule anymore. And I will let Jesus be the true king that he actually is. So if you don't know the Lord, would you come to him this morning? If you don't know what that means, come talk to me. I'd be happy to to talk with you. Uh, Many people here in the church would be able to talk with you and pray with you. Um, But we invite you to come to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for your word. Lord, that by it we might know you, but also that we might live a faithful life. Thank you for the, the life of Peter, the early church, their faithfulness to you. Lord, your faithfulness to them to deliver and to keep your gospel and the testimony of Jesus pure. Father, might that be our desire in this world, that that Jesus Christ would be known and that our testimony in our lives would demonstrate a faithfulness to you and to him, not by way of avoiding difficulty or avoiding pain or through um, easy prayers, but through embracing the difficulties of life, holding fastly to them, and God, at the same time, holding fastly to you. Lord, would you develop us into men and women 
who display Jesus in this world by living a cruciform life. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.